it's uh, a, a discussion for a lot of people. Maybe you hear people talking about this at work or uh, amongst your family. It's uh, it's a, a workplace, whatever it may be. And uh, the article reads, World War III, nuclear tension spark fear that the end is near. And with all the talk about what's going on in the Middle East and uh, with uh, North Korea particularly, uh, people are afraid that is this going to be a sign of the end of World War III that's going to take place? And the article begins to talk about that. And the article reads, World War III became the most frequent Google search term last month. So you know people are thinking about it. And Trump had ordered a missile attack on Syrian airbase to retaliate for serious use of chemical weapons on civilians. And if you're new here visiting with us over the last couple of weeks, it was a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night right after Resurrection Weekend that um, we did, well, it was actually two weeks ago, wasn't it? Just two weeks ago, I did an update on the burden on Damascus, that prophecy update. And so if you haven't uh, listened to that teaching, get that teaching. You can download it on our website, calvarychapelgreeley.com. If you need a CD, you can order it, and they'll make you one. But we went over chapter 17 of Isaiah that talks about the burden on Damascus, what's going to eventually happen to Damascus that has not been fulfilled. And then also Jeremiah chapter 49 that uh, fills in some of the gaps and, uh, and what is going to take place um, in the last days. And so, um, you know, the missile attack on the Syrian air base, what has happened with Iran and Russia being very upset with us and having troops in Syria, linking that to Ezekiel chapter 38. We need to be wise in the day in which we are living in. But we also know that um, tensions with North Korea, the article reads, has ratcheted up over the nation's rocket tests. The U.S. said it would dispatch an aircraft carrier, which they have, and North Korea said it could sink such a ship. According to public policy polling survey taken last month, 39% of all voters, this is all voters, and two-thirds of Clinton voters think that Trump will get the U.S. into World War III during his presidency. So people are very much worried about this, and of course we are hearing about the tensions that are going on with North Korea, and our president has said that it will not continue, that there are geopolitical experts uh, on every level from defense and um, you know, diplomacy policy and all of that that are saying that the biggest threat right now is North Korea. And, and there's the debate whether the, the president you know, is just um, you know, trying to be tough and be you know, a bully and uh, get us to negotiate with him, or is he very serious? And we have to take the th threats very seriously, but there's high tension that is going on, plus what is going on in Syria and in the Middle East. Now, one of the questions that people have emailed me over the last couple of weeks is North Korea mentioned in the scriptures in the last days. And the answer is there's no direct reference to North Korea that we see. It is interesting as we look at the last day scenarios, particularly in those wars of Ezekiel 38, perhaps uh, Jeremiah 49, Isaiah 17, the burden on Damascus, uh, when we look at perhaps uh, Psalm 83 that some look at as a precursor perhaps linked to uh, Ezekiel 38 or before uh, Ezekiel 38, we don't know for sure. We don't know the timing of some of these um, 
these upheaval things uh, that concern nations that are mentioned. We do know that in the tribulation period that there is going to be the last world war, the battle of Armageddon, that will include the kings of the north, the kings of the east, the Antichrist and his forces coming together in the valley of Megiddo in northern Israel, and that's where the Lord will come back, and that will put an end to um, you know, that war and then the, the Lord ushering in his kingdom. So we've covered all that. What is interesting is this to think about, that even though North Korea, there's a lot of nations that are not mentioned in the last day scenario, in the latter days you will read about. And what is uh, interesting is a couple things or to take note of. And one is there seems to be, at least in the tribulation period, there seems to be no superpower that is present. There is no real mention of the United States that we know of in the last days or in the tribulation period. Even if those battles of Ezekiel 38 and, and uh, Isaiah 17, if they take place before the tribulation period, there's really no mention of the United States. There may be a vague mention in Ezekiel 38 protesting on behalf of Israel, but that may be it. So there seems to be an absence of a superpower, at least in the last days when the Antichrist comes on the scene. And so what does it mean for us as, you know, the United States? I don't know what it means. It, it, I don't know exactly what it means. But, but we need to be praying for our nation, and we need to be praying for our leaders, and we need to be praying for our president. The other thing is this. Even though North Korea, and there's a lot of nations that aren't mentioned in the last day scenarios, you know, almost the whole Western Hemisphere is not mentioned, but we know Europe is. We know that Gog, Magog, which is a reference to Russia. We know that those nations in the Middle East are mentioned, the kings of the East, the Far East. We don't know if North Korea is going to be in the last days uh, attached to them or even if the kings of the east in the book of tribulation is even talking about an army or if it's talking about a demonic army that will come on the scene. That's a debate again among scholars. But with North Korea having close ties with Iran, Iran is very much mentioned in the last days. And Iran's going to be a major player in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which may be the next major war that takes place in the Middle East. It will take place before the Battle of Armageddon. And it is believed that if North Korea, as they're working on their, their ballistic missile technology and trying to deliver a nuclear warhead, that's where the, the concern is, is that if they develop that technology to deliver it to South Korea, Japan, to Hawaii, to continental United States, you know who's going to be knocking on their door with a check. It's going to be Iran wanting that technology and wanting those missiles so they can deliver nuclear warheads into the Middle East or against Israel. So North Korea, we do know, you might remember that I made mention of North Korea, that they were helping Syria build a nuclear plant in 2008, right at the end of the President Bush presidency, and Israel found out about it. They were developing a nuclear weapon in that, and Israel was able to bomb it, but North Korea was very much linked to Syria. They're very much linked to Iran, so that's another, you know, concern that the United States has. One of the verses that is very intriguing in Ezekiel chapter 39 that it says that God will send fire on Magog and on the coastlands that dwell in security. 
And scholars have looked at that and said, what does that mean? We don't know. But it's very concerning that he's going to send fire on Magog, but also on the coastlands that dwell in security. So what we need to do is we need to be praying for our nation. We need to be praying for our president. And if you're here tonight and you're thinking, well, I don't like our president. I didn't vote for him. You know, he's not my president. Listen, we are commanded as Christians. It's not a suggestion to be praying for our leaders, as Paul would tell Timothy. And we need to pray for our nation because what is going to happen? How is this going to escalate? We don't know. But you and I, we know who wins, and that is the Lord. He is going to come back. He's going to usher in his kingdom eventually. And Jesus, keep this in mind. He said that when you begin to see these things come to pass, what? Look up and rejoice, for your redemption draws near. And we don't have to have the spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind, as Paul would write to us as he was writing those pastoral epistles to Timothy. Timothy, you don't have to be afraid because the Christians were very much afraid in the first century. And we live in perilous times, as we know, in the last days. And we know that evil is going to increase. And we know that uh, there is going to be great upheaval that's going to take place. But this is a great opportunity for you and I as Christians to be knowledgeable in the scriptures. That's why we spend so much time in God's word. So not only are you wise in the day in which you are living in, but you're able to minister to others who are wondering, as we see in this poll, that, hey, is the end near? When they begin to see these things happen, and you and I have answers for them, and we're able to tell them that our hope is not in this world, but our hope is in Jesus Christ, right? He is our hope. And we need to be praying, and we need to be praying for the day in which we're living in, that not only for wisdom for our leaders and for our president, but we need to be praying for those who are serving in the military. We need to be praying for uh, the church, that the church at this time can be a light. And that you and I can be a light to give truth to others. So, Father, we do. We do. We ask that you would just bless um, tonight is what we ask as we continue through the scriptures. But, Lord, as we consider these things, we look around and there are people that are afraid. There are people that are wondering with the tensions in the Middle East and with North Korea and the talk of nuclear war and the talk of, of all of this that's taken place, we wonder and we wrestle with it. And, and and as um, we come tonight, we don't know what tomorrow holds exactly, but we know that you hold tomorrow. We do know what the scripture says that will be fulfilled, the upheaval that will take place. But Lord, we don't know exactly the timetables of Ezekiel 38 or Isaiah chapter 17, if it's going to take place after we're raptured or before. But Lord, we know that you told us to be wise to be watching, to be working. And Lord, that's my prayer, is that we would be ones that we look for the opportunity to share with people in this dark world that there is light and there is hope, and it's Jesus Christ who came and died for them and rose again to bring salvation, forgiveness of sin, to bring uh, a relationship with the true and living God. And the kingdom of God will be ushered in at some time. But, Lord, for us to stand firm on the truth of your word and, Lord, to be that light in the workplace, that light out in the field, uh, to our families, 
uh, in our neighborhoods, Lord, because you are looking in the day in which we're living in for those who desire to be used. You have chosen us to live in this day, to be privileged to minister in these days that we are living in. So, Lord, we want to keep our eyes on eternity, and we want to occupy till you come. And, Father, I do pray for our nation. I pray that there's a great awakening. I pray that it comes through churches that are committed to teaching your word and not ashamed of the gospel. That, Lord, that there be a revival that would take place amongst the people, realizing that we need to turn from our sins, from the darkness, and, and as we look around, even in our own state, it seems like every time that we turn on the news, it, it's, it's overwhelming. But Lord, I do pray for our leaders. I pray for a president, that you would give him wisdom, that there be a humbling of our leadership and our president looking to you, that there be godly influence somehow given to him. And Lord, that um, we ask that you would help him in the decisions that he is going to make that's going to affect so many, the whole world. And Lord, I pray for our men and women that are serving. We thank you for their service. And even those that belong to this church, Lord, that are over there right now, I pray for Joe. I pray for, for Wes. I pray for Keith, who's getting ready to finish up boot camp. I, I pray for these men. That, Lord, that they've chosen to go and serve our nation. And, Lord, I pray that you would be with them, and with our troops, as they are there to defend our freedoms and our way of living. Lord, as this month is police week, and we remember those who have fallen, as we look at the death rates of our first responders, peace officers that have gone up, and Lord, even as we in Weld County will be remembering them at another uh, memorial service here in just two weeks. And Father, I pray that you would just be with those who carry the badge and wear the shield, who keep the line. They are your ministers, Romans chapter 13 says, for good. And we just pray that you would keep them safe. And Lord, that you would be with them. And, Lord, that we would support them. We have so much to be thankful for in our nation. And I pray that we would never take it for granted. So, Lord, we just take time tonight as we think about these things to just consider them and lift these things up to you. Bless tonight's study. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now, you remember that last week as we started Ecclesiastes, that Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, we know it's Solomon because in chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and then in verse 12, that I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So the only one son of David that ruled over all of Israel was Solomon. Now Rehoboam did for a couple weeks until the nation split under his reign uh, as the ten northern tribes were split away from Judah and from Benjamin. So this is Solomon, obviously, plus as we go through Ecclesiastes, the whole theme of Ecclesiastes is this, vanity. He, he starts out by saying, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
And some people look at the book of Ecclesiastes as this is really a bummer. This is really a book that I try to avoid. I really don't want to study and I really don't want to look at. But this book is so important to us because think about here is Solomon. He's the king over Israel and he talks about that he had it all. And he tries to find satisfaction and fulfillment and real purpose in different things in life. And, and here is Solomon, ruler over Israel during the time that it was going through its greatest prosperity, its greatest power, its greatest, you know, prestige. And here is Solomon that was given wisdom. You recall that the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, Solomon, what is it that you want? And he said, I'm young and, I, and this is a great people for me to rule over. I need wisdom. And the Lord gave him great wisdom and great wealth. And so Solomon, ruling for 40 years, we know that he was wealthier than any man that ever lived. He wore golden sandals. It was silver that was so common in Jerusalem, the scripture tells us, that it was as valuable as rocks. We know that everything was overlaid with gold in the temple and in his palace. And we know that Solomon not only having great wealth to where he had all these stables that had uh, horses. Matter of fact, it is believed by some that Solomon had as many as 40,000 horses. Now that would be like somebody today had 40,000 luxury cars in warehouses. He had so much wealth, he had it all. He had a thousand wives and concubines. He was one that had great knowledge. We talked about that last time, how he pursued knowledge and philosophy. And even though he did, uh, that he was one that uh, was a biologist, he was a zoologist, he was a botanist, he studied fish, he studied wind currents, he speaks about that in chapter 1. He, he was a very knowledgeable man, and he said it was all vanity, and it was burdensome. And he's not saying that we shouldn't increase our knowledge or, or that you should quit school or not go to college. That's not what he's saying. But like anything else, when it is apart from the Lord, it ends up to where you're not satisfied and fulfilled in, in your heart and in your soul. And he talks about all these things, the wealth and the power and the women, and he's going to continue on here. The knowledge, the labor, it was all vanity because it was all apart from the Lord. And here's where we need to understand this, that this is the way that a lot of people in the world feel. And people that you know, and people that you talk to and work alongside of and, and have opportunity to minister to, that they go through life. And yes, there's temporary satisfaction and fulfillment, but I think Solomon is writing this towards the end of his life. He's had all those years of having everything, anything that he wanted, that he had, that he desired, and he will speak about that. And he says, it's all vanity is that word, nothing new under the sun. It's all mundane and it's boring and there's no real purpose. And yeah, it's sad in that sense, but it teaches us something. That first of all, that anything that we have and anything that we do apart from Christ is going to leave us empty and unfulfilled ultimately. Oh, there's temporary satisfaction in pleasure, in our labor, in those things that we do in life, what we enjoy in life. But if we don't have a close relationship with the Lord, 
it ends up being empty, that empty feeling in our soul and in our hearts because we were created to worship him and to know him. We were created, Revelation chapter 4, for his good pleasures. We were created to be his workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus, to bring honor and glory to him, to worship him, and to know him. That's why we were created, because he loves you and wants to have fellowship with you. And one of the things that in my own devotions that the Lord really pressed upon my heart this week in reading through the scriptures, because I'm reading about how fellowship was important, koinonia with the believers. And I was wondering, why is fellowship so important for you, Lord, to, to, to press and to emphasize with the believers for one another? And that's that we need each other to edify each other, to build each other up. But one of the things that I believe the Lord really spoke to me is because he wants to have fellowship with us. He wants to have fellowship with you. It's important to him that he desires for you to have that closeness and intimacy with him and to know him. He loves spending time with you. And that's where we have great joy. And even as David would say, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And that's my prayer for me this summer and for you and for this church. That my prayer is, Lord, this, that you would just restore unto this the joy of your salvation. So Solomon is talking about these things as we move into chapter 2. After he talks about, you know, pursuing knowledge and worldly philosophy, I said in my heart in chapter 2, Come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. So, you know, forget the the pursuing knowledge. Um, Let's party. Let's find pleasure in, in worldly uh, things, in partying. Uh, but he says it was also vanity. He, he talks about, in verse 2, I said of laughter, madness, and of uh, mirth, what does it accomplish? I search in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good in the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives and so laughter was madness and and i try to gratify my flesh with wine no different than three thousand years ago of people who gratify their flesh with wine with drugs you know um, again you, you can there isn't a night that goes by that we don't watch our local news and it's something about the marijuana initiative and the challenges that come with it and, and you know, all the things trying to figure out how to keep it at bay and, and um, you know, new regulations and all this. What a mess that it is. We know that the scripture tells us, as Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, he said, don't be filled with wine in chapter 5, but with the Spirit. And we know that there is the drunkenness, the sin of drunkenness that is spoken in the scriptures. Listen, don't be filled with wine. And it may satisfy temporarily again your flesh as you go and gratify your flesh, but eventually it's going to bring you down, it's going to do you in, and it's going to wipe you out. And you may feel that I have the liberty to have some wine or to drink a beer or whatever. That's between you and the Lord. But I do want to say this, that the scripture is very clear. Do not be filled with wine. 
but be filled with the Spirit. And we don't want our minds to be altered. People will email me and they'll call me and they'll say, is it okay as a Christian for me to smoke marijuana? I mean, God, you know, created marijuana. Can we smoke it? Just because it's legal doesn't make it right. And to alter your mind to where you can't discern between what is good and what is wrong, what is clean, what is unclean. And you see, we know that Leviticus chapter 10, that Aaron, the high priest, and he had four sons, and two of his sons let uh, lit their own censers and strange fire they presented before the Lord and fire came down and consumed them and then we know that the Lord spoke to Aaron and his remaining two sons that listen Aaron when you go into the Holy of Holies that is speaking of the presence of the Lord when you go into the Holy of Holies and your two sons make sure that you're not intoxicated with wine so you can discern between what is clean and unclean what is good and what is evil what is right and what is wrong. The indication is his two sons were drunk with wine. Listen, the reason that I'm pressing this point a little bit is because in 25 years of ministry, I have seen alcohol and drugs destroy so many people's lives and families and marriages and nothing good has come out of it. And if you feel at liberty, whatever it is, to drink some wine or whatever it is, again, that's between you and the Lord, but be careful. I know for me as an elder that Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that an elder is not to be given to wine, and I won't be given to it. But Sue and I listen, and this is not, you know, hooray for us, but this is something for you to pray through and to think through and, and to really go to the Lord. And I think it's worth doing it. But we have chosen not to, you know, have any drinks before our children, you know, because I didn't want my children to say, oh, there's dad. He's drinking beer and he's drinking wine because what is it that they're learning? Again, that's between you and the Lord. And I'm not saying this condemningly. I'm not saying this to be legalistic. But you know our children learn from us and they learn from our actions. And I didn't want to put that to where they looked at mom and dad and said, well, you know, they drink and they think it's fine. And maybe it was fine with you, but it doesn't mean that they will be able to handle it. So be wise. Be wise. Walk circumspectly, that is carefully. <laughs> and Walk wisely. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And allow the Lord to speak to you on these things. So here's Solomon, he's saying, I didn't find any satisfaction in those things. And again, that it was David that wrote in that famous psalm, Psalm 16, that it's in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want to discover that more and more in my life. That Lord, that truly that my joy comes from being in your presence, coming to you day after day, moment by moment, drawing close to you, that I want to walk in the Spirit. And so Solomon, speaking of these things, he, he goes on in verse 4, I made my works present, I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards, I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, I made myself water pools from which to water the going trees of the grove, and he's going to say the word I in verses 3 through 11, 32 times is a personal pronoun. 
I made, I acquired, I gathered. It's all I, I, I. Does it remind you of anything? It reminds you, doesn't it, of Luke when it was the Lord that said, beware covetousness, and he told that parable of the, you know, one who was blessed by abundance of crops. Listen, this is not teaching us that we shouldn't plant vineyards or work the land or make ourselves houses or any of those other things, that we shouldn't labor in that way. And there is satisfaction in the fruit of our labor, but it's like anything else, whether we're pursuing knowledge, whether it's our labor, whether it's with relationships, whatever the case may be, when it's apart from Jesus Christ, there seems to be emptiness. And we see that, as he says, it's all I, I, I. It's apart from the Lord. Just like that, that rich fool who said, I will build bigger barns, I will take my ease, I will take my rest, you know, and, and Jesus said he wasn't rich towards God. That was the tragedy of it, not that he was blessed with an abundance of crops, but he gave no thought to God. And we have discussed quite extensively over the last few weeks in Luke's gospel the importance of being a good steward and the importance of looking to the future because all of it is going to go away. And that's why Solomon is saying it's going to go away. It's all vanity. But when we do it in the Lord, we can enjoy the fruits of our labors. We can enjoy whatever it is that the Lord has blessed us with. And so just because you, you build in all this doesn't make you satisfied and fulfilled in, in a lasting kind of way at all. Look at Herod the Great. When we were showing slides of, of Israel, Herod the Great, he was called the Great because he was a great builder, amazing builder for his time. The aqueducts that he, he made to bring in water, he had, you know, fortresses. Masada is absolutely incredible on that big bluff, 1,500 feet, that, you know, on the bluff that's above the desert, Judean desert. He makes a fortress up there. It had saunas and pools and... And what he did was absolutely incredible. What Herod the Great did in, in uh, Herodias, that fortress right around Bethlehem, and, and what he did in building and remodeling the temple, and what he did in Caesarea, he was an amazing builder. And you think, wow, these guys, you know, there's things that they did that they can't figure out. The Herodian stones that are just like a hairline fracture, no mortar used between these large stones. How they got the stones in place, all of this. And yet he was a miserable, miserable man that lived a miserable life. It was all apart from the Lord. And he was cruel and he was mean. They had a saying up in the Roman Senate at that time, Herod the Great was was ruling over Judea at the time of the birth of Jesus. They said it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. He was so miserable and so paranoid. He was afraid somebody was always going to try to take away his power, so he killed many of his family members, even his own wives. He felt bad about killing his wife Herodias, so he built a fortress for her. So here Solomon is saying all this labor, he says it's vanity, uh, verse 7, I acquired male and female servants, and I had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the, 
you know, the delight of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. He had great wealth, servants. Of course, it was uh, Samuel when they came to Samuel in 1 Samuel and said, we want a king over us. We want to be like the other nations. And the Lord was grieved because he wanted to rule over them. That's why I called you Israel, governed by God. And Samuel would give that warning to the people. When you have a king, that king is going to come along and take your sons and your daughters to be servants and take your lands and tax you heavily. And that's exactly what happened. And we know that when the Queen of Sheba came up to visit Solomon, we read in 1 Kings that the Queen of Sheba was just amazed at not only the wealth of Solomon and his building projects. She said half of, you know, Uh, wasn't even told of me the splendor of your kingdom but she would also comment on the servants how the servants were there how the servants were there you know uh, serving and she was impressed by that and the one day provision for Solomon at that time that first Kings chapter 4 tells us is that he had would use 200 bushels of flour 400 bushels of meal 100 prime oxen 200 commercial oxen and a hundred deer and sheep and gazelles. In other words, he would have these huge feasts, and his daily provision would be enough for 14,000 people. And here's the queen of Sheba saying, the servants, they're amazing. And here he talks about that. He had choirs, he had singers, he had musical instruments of all kinds. It would make Hollywood envious. The parties that he had, the wine that is flowing, He brought in exotic animals at these gatherings and these parties, and he says it's all vanity. And then he goes on in verse 9, So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. In verse 11, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. And there is no profit under the sun, as he says, that I became great and excelled in worldly things. Whatever he wanted, he desired, he got. He worked in many ways, and he says it's all vanity. It's all grasping for the wind, no profit under the sun. There's nothing more to obtain. There was no more stables to make for horses. There was no more buildings to make. There was no more investment to make. There was no more women to have. He had it all. And whatever he wanted, he got. And here is a man that is down and depressed and discouraged and and seems hopeless because he didn't have that close relationship with the Lord. He had lost that. And there can be those that they seem like they have it all and they can be so miserable because they don't have Jesus. And then I turn myself in verse 12 to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done? Then I saw that wisdom excels folly and as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happened to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. 
For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? So what he's saying here in verses 12 through 16, that no one coming after me is going to accomplish more than I did because I have it all. I've accomplished it all. Can you imagine? A lot of times we're down, discouraged, and depressed because we wanted to accomplish so much more. We think, oh, you know, I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I could be. But here is one that he's accomplished all of it, and he says it's all vanity. And then he goes on and he says that he recognizes wisdom is better than foolishness, but he gets depressed because it bothers him that, that the, we're both going to end up the same. We're all going to be forgotten. And our lives are going to come to an end. He has a temporary focus, not an eternal focus. Keep your eyes on the things above, not on the things of this world. And as Christians, we are to have an eternal perspective, aren't we? And I pray that you do. And we, you know, as Solomon says, it's all going to be left. He's going to talk about in the following verses, it's going to be left for somebody who's going to do, you know, foolish things with what it is that I leave behind. We want to leave an inheritance, perhaps, to our children, to our grandchildren. But the greatest inheritance that you can leave, that I can leave, is a godly inheritance. That should be the priority with us. That we are going to go to heaven, and the things that we do have, we can't take with us. We can bless our family with it, but the greatest blessing that we can give to them is a godly inheritance. That is of great importance. And that's what I want to do. I want to leave that inheritance to my children, if I have grandchildren, however long the Lord has for me. And that should be a priority for all of us to have that eternal focus. And I'll tell you what, what keeps me from just being hopeless and helpless and discouraged and depressed, like Solomon here is expressing, is I know that when I am done here on this side of eternity, I'm going to go home and be with the Lord. And I, we got a wonderful future, amen? So keep that perspective. But we can be so much in the here and now and the temporary. And even as I think about leaving that godly inheritance, I think about that for the benefit of the church. You know, I did a wedding a couple weeks ago. I did it, it took place at the oldest church in Greeley, that's downtown. The building is a historical building. And at one time, that church was full of worshipers. At one time, that church, you know, had... Uh, believers that were there every week. And matter of fact, we had a sweet lady that was coming here. She showed me about seven, eight years ago. She was in her 80s. She grew up in that church, and she actually came. She was, you know, one that, a Christian from a little girl, and she brought me newspapers from Greeley Tribune that did a big article on that church downtown that was full of worshipers, about 700 people, packed out in that place and how God was moving and working. And here it is, 60 years later, and the church has dissolved. No longer exists. Another church is using the building. The building is run down. It's an old building. But I thank Lord that what my prayer is for Calvary Chapel here is that we wouldn't die out. In 10 years and 20 years, if the Lord tarries 30 years and 40 years and 50 years. 
that what has begun in the Spirit would continue in the Spirit. That we invest in our young people, leaving that godly inheritance to new leaders that are going to be raised up. And I see that happening, and it excites me, and it's a blessing to me because I'm not going to last forever. Listen, I plan on ministering till my last breath, but I'm not going to last forever. And it's going to be important that we continue to invest in our youth and young people because they are part of the church, and yet they're going to lead the church in the future. All of us are important. All generations, we don't want to forget about anybody, but particularly we want to think about passing it on so that this church doesn't die out. That I pray, Lord, I want it to be stronger and better. And, and for that work that you want to do in these days in which we're living in are going to continue. But I see churches that die out because they weren't investing in their young people. So here he, he's talking about those things. And in verse 17, therefore I hated life. Can you imagine? I hate life. Because the work that was done under the sun was distressing for, to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun. Because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun, this also is vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it, and this also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor, and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful, verse 23, and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. And so we see he's saying all this toil, first of all, is burdensome. It keeps me up at night. We've all experienced that. We're thinking about what needs to be done and, and how things going and, and all of this. And he says, all that I've done, I don't know if I'm going to leave it to somebody who's wise or leave it to somebody who's foolish. And he would leave it to his son Rehoboam, who scholars say in just a matter of about two weeks would go to the people and say, I'm going to tax you heavily as they had requested that, hey, ease off. Your father Solomon really taxed us heavily. He, he took our lands. He took our sons and daughters. Can you ease up on us? And he said no. So the ten northern tribes split off, and they were the house of Israel, and that was a disaster. So he did leave it to Rehoboam, who was foolish. But then as he talks about that in verse 24, nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting. He may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. What's he doing? He, he draws a conclusion here. It's one of six conclusions in Ecclesiastes. He says that, that enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy what God has given to you. And I think that's a real key. And I've said this before. One of the things that I love about living in Greeley in northern Colorado here is that the people that work so hard, you work the land, you have businesses, 
you know, you work in, in your profession, and it really impresses me some of the things that some of you guys do and how hard you work. And, and, and it's a blessing to our community. It's a blessing to your family. And we want to work hard, don't we? And we should work hard. We want to leave something for our children and for our grandchildren. We want to leave a better life, don't we? But here what Solomon is saying is that be content in the Lord. And this is also a hand of God. Enjoy and do it as unto the Lord our labor and what we do. And to make sure that as you enjoy it, because we can get so busy that we can forget and leave our family behind or leave our kids behind, and we don't want to do that. To leave that godly inheritance for them. And to be thankful for what you do have. One of the things that we're going to see on Sunday is that there is the ten lepers that were healed and only one came back to give thanks. We don't want to be Christians that we only give thanks one out of every ten times or ten things or workings of God. Be content where God has you and have that desire to keep your eyes on eternity to benefit others for the kingdom and to use what God has given to you and the blessings of your labor to be a blessing not only to your family but to the kingdom of God. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, um, Ecclesiastes is an important book to us because apart from you, whatever it is that we do, it ends up being vanity and wondering what the purpose is and and grasping for the wind and all the phrases that Solomon uses. But, Lord, with you, with you, it is profitable and beneficial. May we be content and thankful. And, Lord, you do bless. And we thank you for that. But we want to prioritize you in our lives. And even now as we come to the communion table on this night, we're very thankful that Jesus gave his life for us. That he allowed his body to be broken and his bloodshed so we can be heirs, joint heirs with Christ and have a godly eternal inheritance. The riches of Christ that we have are so glorious we can't even imagine it. Father, I pray that as we gather in this place that we would give thanks that it wouldn't just be an exercise we go through, but actually giving thanks to you. And I do pray tonight, Lord, that we come as believers to the communion table, but if there's anyone, you're here, you never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You see, it's all vanity. It's all going to come to an end. You were created to know him, and Jesus made that possible by going to the cross. That's why we come to the communion table to remember he went to the cross and died for your sins because he, he is your hope. All of us have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life that comes through his son as you believe in him. He is your salvation. And you can come to Christ if you never have to be born again by the spirit of God and have a new heart and a new beginning to be forgiven and have the hope of heaven. It comes by recognizing that you're a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus. And you can pray right where you are. That Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I am a sinner. 
And Lord, I need you. Forgive me. I believe that you're the son of God who died for me. That you're alive speaking to my heart. And now I open up the door of my heart and ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for loving me and dying for me and saving me and forgiving me and help me to know you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And if anybody that is here that you did make a decision for Christ, when we conclude the service after we take communion, come up. I want to pray with you. And, or if you're listening on live stream or on the radio, give us a call here at the church because we want to bless you and pray for you. But right now, it's the communion elements that are being handed out. Lord, help us to just hang on to them, be in worship, be thankful, and we'll partake of the elements together. In Jesus' name, amen.